This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture and I'm Juliet Jacobs. For 50 years, WWF Malaysia has worked with government agencies, businesses, communities, NGOs and individual supporters to protect nature. And as WWF Malaysia themselves put it, to shape our future where people and nature thrive together. So today on the show, I'm catching up with Dr. Henry Chan, WWF Malaysia's Conservation Director, for a look back at some of their achievements and also a look forward to what they have in store for the years to come. Welcome, Henry. How are you today? Thank you, Juliet, and thank you for having us here. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. So I think, Henry, you know, we were talking before we started recording. It's been four years since we last caught up. So much has happened, isn't it? That's right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's good to have you back on the show. So, I mean, you know, congratulations. Happy anniversary to you guys. You turned 50 in January. What a milestone. Um, let's let's go back to the start, you know, maybe for those who are unfamiliar. Uh, how and when did WWF Malaysia first begin to work? Uh, yeah, well, in Malaysia, obviously, yeah. Thank you, Juliet, and once again, thank you for having us here. So, uh, to start, uh, in 1972, WWF Malaysia was registered under the Malaysian law as a National Conservation Trust. With this, His Royal Highness Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, presented the official WWF Charter to Tan Sri Kiu Johari, the first president of WWF Malaysia. Now, our first ever conservation project was with Sabah Parks on the survey of Pulau Gaya. This led to the establishment of the island as the Tunku Abdurrahman Park. Today, we are a leading national conservation organization powered by over 200 staffs in Selangor, Sabah and Sarawak, Malacca, Trengganu, Pahang, Perak and Kedah. We run more than 50 projects covering a range of environmental conservation and protection work from saving endangered species such as tigers, elephants, and turtles to protecting highland forests, rivers, and seas. Yeah, I mean, so much that you guys do. And I guess, you know, just, you know, looking back further at the history of the team, right? I mean, who were some of your pioneer team members um, that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, the first, the pioneer, of course, is our lead, Ken Scriven, who was our first CEO, CEO and he established the Bureau of Malaysia as a founding board member, apart from Tan Sri Kiu Johari as our first president. Okay. Um, and um, I think you mentioned what the team sort of focused on the start at the start, right? Is there anything else you'd like to add to that? Like, you know, what your, your main priorities were when you started? Yes. Yeah, the first article of the Bureau of Malaysia Charter is to support the government of Malaysia establish national parks. On this, we work with the national park authorities to identify important habitats for wildlife conservation. We undertake wildlife surveys and we provide facts to the government to consider as national parks. And as I mentioned earlier, we initiated the establishment of the Tunku Abdurrahman Park across Kota Kanabalu. Now, uh, for those of you who go to KK and if you sit at the waterfront, just across the water is an island and there is a Tunku Abdurrahman Park. Yeah, other parks also include the Lanja Antima Wildlife Sanctuary in Sarawak, the Tun Mustafa Park, and the Tabin Wildlife Reserve in Sabah, and in Peninsular Malaysia, the Royal Bloom State Park in Perak. And I guess, you know, just, just looking at the growth of the organization, right? How would you describe its, uh, its growth, you know, how it's, um, yeah, the evolution of the companies, you know, these past 50 years? Yes. So as I mentioned, our, our first chapter is about uh, establishing national parks. 
Yeah, so wild national parks and protected areas are the core feature for conservation. As a country, we could never allocate enough space for the total protection of natural habitats. In fact, Malaysia's national biological diversity policy calls for 20% of our total land mass to be protected, hmm. while the state of Sabah has pledged 30% of our land mass to be protected. So as such, Juliet, it's crucial that our conservation work encompasses a broad range of wildlife and ecological systems. So using the example of forests, our work focuses on both the protection and management of key ecosystems such as forests, fresh water, as well as the habitats of charismatic species mm -hmm. such as the Malayan tiger, Borneo elephant, and Orangutan. These ecosystems represent the biosphere in Malaysia that we, the human beings, depend on for our survival and well-being. Now, the government has allocated much of our natural habitats as concessions for the exploitation of natural resources. So our work also emphasizes the mobilization of various stakeholders through advocacy, engagement, and education, so that the private sector will manage these natural resources in a sustainable manner. We play an intermediate role by providing frameworks that address the limited capacities of our natural resources and offer the best recommended practices. Okay. All right. So you've got definitely got your work cut out for them. Um, I guess, you know, if you're just to sort of reflect on the work, right, what are the uh, big points of progress for WWF Malaysia in the past few decades? I, I mean, as far as you're concerned, what are some highlights? Yeah, of course, it will take hours, right, to <laughs> all the things that we have done. But, but let me share with you three broad categories yeah, of, our, of, of the notable conservation wins mm -hmm. that we have had uh, through the years. Uh, the first, of course, is on species conservation. Yeah, so, so number one, to prevent our Malayan tigers yeah, from being hunted into extinction, we are now facing a national crisis, yeah, and Prime Minister and the Cabinet has actually endorsed a national tiger recovery plan. So for, our, for us, yeah, over a five-year period yeah, for, from 2016 to 2020 in Royal Bloom, our Malayan tiger anti-poaching teams yeah, have patrolled more than 35,000 kilometers yeah, of the Bloom Temenggor Frost Complex in Upper Perak. Uh, through the years, through the effort, uh, we have removed more than 200 active snares that could have injured or killed the wildlife. Our anti-poaching work has shown early indicators of success. Throughout 2020 and 2021, our camera traps caught footage of a female tiger and three cubs. Wow. This was indeed, yeah, yeah, this was indeed you know, encouraging news for our Malayan tigers since no signs of tiger breeding was recorded yeah, in the Bloom Temango Forest Complex during the last intensive monitoring survey mm. in 2017 and 2018. So this is number one. Number two, in support of orangutan conservation, by 2019, we restored more than 2,000 hectares of badly degraded forests in Bukipiton, Sabah, by supporting the Sabah Forestry Department, plant more than 345,000 trees. We have raised millions of, of ringgit in Europe and Japan to undertake this effort. Uh, thank you to our supporters uh, throughout the world. Mm -hmm. uh, the third area is uh, from 2014 to 2017, we have surveyed more than 3,500, sorry, more than 35,000 square kilometers of Sabah's forest. The goal is to gather data that will help us improve Bonian orangutan and Bonian elephant conservation efforts. 
and places with high orangutan populations are being considered by the Sabah state government yeah, to be gazetted as protected areas. The second okay. category is the racial one. It's about you know, establishing national parks and protected areas. Mm-hmm. So example is our contribution yeah, towards the gazetting of the 9,000 900,000 hectares of Tun Musafa Park in Sabah. Yes, taken us 15 years. Wow. <laughs> what a struggle, yeah. yeah. To get the government and finding the cabinet to approve yeah, the gazettement. So our work in the Tun Musafa Park is very important uh, to conserve the biodiversity, uh, ensure sustainable development and elevating the poverty of the local fisher communities. Uh, this TMP in Kudat is located in the Coral Triangle, one of the most important coral reefs uh, in, the whole, in the whole wide world. And, and lastly, uh, the third category is the advocacy for enhanced wildlife enforcement and application of the law by the uh, judiciary. So on this, yeah, apart from lobbying the Royal Malaysian Police, in setting up a wildlife crime bureau, we have helped to develop sentencing guidelines for forest crimes, which was approved and endorsed by the Chief Judge of Sabah and Sarawak last year. So we hope that these guidelines will ensure proper handling of, of, of the crime cases and incriminations of the perpetrators. Okay, all right. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it, Henry? I mean, that's just, I've forced you to sort of like consolidate it into the top ones, but there's so much more. I mean, there's already so much there. And, uh, you know, of course, the work still remains, isn't it? It just it never quite stops, unfortunately, especially when it comes to the environment, Yeah. Yes. Okay. But well, let's just go for one quick break, Henry. When we come back, let's talk about some of the things that you are planning to work on in the next 50 to 100 years. I'm speaking today to Dr. Henry Chan. He's the Conservation Director of WWF Malaysia. WWF uh, Malaysia just turned 50 at the start of the year. So we're sort of looking back at some of the achievements, uh, some of their many achievements, and we're also going to look forward to what they have planned. We'll have more after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me on the line today is Dr. Henry Chan. He's the Conservation Director at WWF Malaysia. WWF Malaysia turned 50 uh, back in January of this year, so we're celebrating with them. A little belated celebration, but, you know, I think it should be a year-long celebration, isn't it, Henry? So we're looking back at uh, achievements and we're also looking forward to what they have planned. Now, I guess, you know, Henry, when, when people say WWF Malaysia or WWF, you know, people instantly know... Um, that's an environmental organization. You're very well known, you know, very easily recognizable. Do you think that, you know, these sorts of mainstream environmental movements uh, is part of the problem or part of the solution? I'm sure I know the answer to this, but yeah, I'm just curious what you would say to that. Yeah, yeah, Juliet, obviously you know the answer, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And therefore, you know, mainstreaming, you know, the movements uh, you know, towards the environment are part of the solution. You yourself yeah, have interviewed uh, in a number of NGOs working on the environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so besides shedding light and raising awareness yeah, on the importance of, of our environment, uh, these NGOs, uh, ourselves included, have highlighted the, the dire state of the problems plaguing the environment. Mm-hmm. While some groups are, act like activists, they create pressure on the wrongdoers. Others, like us, engage with the private sector and guide them towards adopting best national practices. So it, it needs a, a marriage of both, I would say, right? I mean, everybody's sort of working in their parts, but all together, you know, in, in protection, you know, towards the protection of the environment and conservation. I think it all works together quite well, right? In, in the- yeah. And do you think, um, you know, are more people not in, 
the conservation line getting involved in the environmental justice movement? I mean, you know, there's so much more knowledge about the climate crisis, for example, a lot more people are speaking up. Uh, do you think, you know, you're seeing more uh, more support? And, and if so, how does that sort of aid in your own work? Yes, indeed. Um, we, we, there are never enough people, right? Never enough people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so people like us uh, in, in, you know, uh, in our organization work as frontline here. Yeah? Now you've seen the COVID uh, jargon, no? mm-hmm. frontline, you know, advancing conservation. We need people from all walks of life to get involved in the justice for the environment. For that, I'm grateful that programs such as Earth Matters, like yours, now reaching out to your BFM listeners, are creating awareness that it takes a whole of national approach yeah, for our environment to be maintained for the benefit of people and nature. Now, people all over the world, especially in emerging markets, are increasingly aware of the planetary crisis that we are living beyond our means. That, sure. our consumption, that our consumption requires much more than what planet Earth can sustainably provide. This is what we talked about four years ago. Yes. Now, this, this awareness affecting the behavior in the rapidly growing, is a rapidly growing global mood. It's what the WWF has dubbed as eco is what WWF has dubbed as eco-wakening. In the clear validation of a growing trend, concerned individuals and consumers are acting on their concerns and demanding that both government and corporate action over natural laws and biodiversity. Therefore, businesses and governments around the world must take notice of what the public are saying. The voices expressing public concern for nature are growing ever louder. A global research by the Economist Intelligence Units shows that in the past five years, there was a 16% increase in public concerns raised. So this equates to hundreds of millions of people around the world who are increasingly concerned. Listeners of BFM should realize that as consumers, they have purchasing power and can collectively form a strong voice to demand more sustainable products to be sold on the shelves. For change to be implemented, we, the people and consumers, need to make our voices heard. We must wake up, reduce our damaging ecological footprints, and live in a manner that we create positive change for a sustainable future. As such, WWF Malaysia urges consumers to play a bigger role in sustainable consumption by exercising purchasing power towards buying responsibly. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's really important. You know, a lot of the power actually resides with us, isn't it? And, you know, you speak a lot about um, advocacy, right, Henry? I mean, in general, what are some of the primary strategies that WWF Malaysia sort of reach, uh, uses to, I guess, reach out, you know, engage with the public, uh, old, young, everybody? You know, you, you mentioned all of, uh, all of society approach, right? How do you go about uh, reaching them, especially on such topics, you know, sustainability, conservation, etc.? Yeah. In the Braille, we have actually a comms department uh, to, to lead this advocacy work together with our policies, staff and other colleagues. Yeah, Our primary strategies in reaching the public are through social media, letters to the editors, opinion pieces in traditional media, face-to-face engagements such as conferences, Earth Hour events, the Global Tiger public engagement and talks on conservation. Now, during the, the COVID-19 pandemic, we have had to pivot our communications and engagement across our uh, digital channels and participate actively in virtual events. 
I myself have uh, uh, given talks in a number of public forums. In fact, these online engagements are a more accessible and cost-effective approach to recruit new supporters. And I'm pleased to say that our efforts have both, both fruits as our supporter base grew during the pandemic. With this adaptive management, we have achieved a 200% increase in external engagements from digital to traditional media channels. Now, one of the notable achievements for a digital engagement is the more than 21 million digital reach in support of campaigns, including a Global Tiger Day 2020 and Earth Hour 2021 through our uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube channels. Okay, that's excellent. I mean, you know, you would have thought that during the pandemic, people would have been so um, Zoom fatigued, right, with all these online sort of engagements, but clearly that's not been the case for you guys. That's right, yeah. That's awesome. Okay, and how, um, I guess you keep the public uh, involved and up to date on these initiatives through social media, as you mentioned, or, or are there other, other channels as well that you use? Yeah, yeah. Apart from, from the social media that get public informed, uh, we also organize you know, uh, uh, regular Facebook live sessions on an ongoing basis, mm-hmm. sometimes on a weekly basis uh, with our supporters, where we can interact with, with them. Uh, apart from that, we also regularly update the media through media, re- through media releases you know, on our work and current issues. Um, many of our staffs, uh, myself included, get invited to uh, present you know, presentation in uh, in you know, in virtual conferences and and so on. Okay, excellent. So you guys have been keeping busy, of course, yeah, throughout these last two years, especially. Um, I guess you know from all of these sorts of engagements and you know reaching out to the public. Uh, what areas do you see the biggest room for growth? You know, especially when it comes to conservation and sustainability. Yeah, uh, among all the various issues that confront uh, the nation, I would say all areas associated with climate change will see the biggest room for growth in the field of sustainability. Mm. The Paris Agreement in 2015 on climate change was the first milestone to shift corporate behavior. As governments of the world pledged to keep our temperature rise to within 2 degrees Celsius, many initiatives with potential legal implications have been adopted. In Malaysia, for instance, Bank Negara Malaysia and the Securities Commission, through the Joint Committee on Climate Change, have encouraged the private sector to embrace ESGs, otherwise known as environmental social governance, before enforcement comes into force. Last year, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC, met in Glasgow, was another major milestone. A majority of countries, including Malaysia, pledged for no more deforestation. Mm-hmm. And many countries have placed emphasis on phasing out coal in energy production. Combined, no more deforestation means we would stop degrading our green lung that absorbs greenhouse gases, or GSG. And phasing out coal means we would drastically reduce the emission of GSG. The outcome is a clarity of the pathway towards preventing temperature, temperature rise to beyond 2 degrees Celsius. Let me step up front, Juliet, without going into the specifics that the phrase net zero pathway over the next couple of months will become declaring call to decarbonize the global economy. There will be the inevitable increased recurrence of events associated with climate crisis such as, such as hurricanes and typhoons resulting in prolonged rainfall and massive floods. 
like what we experienced in, in December and just recently. We will also face prolonged drought that causes massive forest fires. If we don't embrace net zero pathway to bring down our GSG emission, we will soon lose the race to control our temperature rise. Yeah, we are at such a critical juncture, isn't it, Henry? And um, yeah, action should have been taken like 10 years, well, 30 years ago, some say, right? But yeah, we really need to, uh, you know, put our concerted effort into this. But, you know, all of these things that you just mentioned, you know, all these these talks and these uh, pledges and these promises, how, uh, how are you guys at WWF actually tracking progress uh, towards these sorts of sustainability measures? Are you, I mean, are there some measures in place? Yes, we have. So for us, uh, we are guided by our 2021 to 2030 strategy, mm-hmm. our vision. The vision is reverse the decline of nature and transform Malaysia into a sustainable nation by 2030. We adopt 10 goals that characterize how we define and track progress of Malaysia as a sustainable nation by 2030. Uh, please let me share with your listeners the first three goals. Goal number one is for Malaysia to have at least 50% of a total land mass gazetted as protected areas and forest reserves. To date, we have achieved 48%. Good news, right? That's wonderful news, yeah. Wonderful news. However, the the remaining 2% takes a lot of effort to undertake the process to gazette the total 660,000 hectares. Mm-hmm. As I said earlier, in the case of Thomas Sampa Park, it took us 15 years. It's a long, long process. We don't have 15 years, do yeah. we? Yeah, we need it now, yeah. yeah. Right. Now, our second goal is for the country to restore 1 million hectares of degraded forest by 2025. Mm-hmm. So by that period, we wish to see more than 200,000 hectares of severely degraded forest land planted with trees. And with more than 700,000 hectares of relatively degraded forest undergoing natural forest regeneration. Our third goal is for all timber, palm oil and rubber to be produced in full compliance with the principles of certification. By 2025, we wish to see 10 million hectares of our forest reserves to be certified. 10% of our rubber produced in a sustainable manner and 100% of all palm oil is MSPO certified and 25% is RSPO certified. These are just the top three goals. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, that's uh, that's where all that work that you guys do, you know, fostering these relationships with all the different stakeholders, that's where uh, all of that comes in, right? Keeping up the pressure, you know, making sure that they are on top of these goals and, and advocating for all of these, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Okay. And I, I'm just curious, you know, Henry, you know, for you yourself, you know, um, is there a particular insight, a learning experience, an aha moment, you know, that, that you've had, you know, of, through all your years of working at WWF Malaysia? Yeah, actually, Julia, I would like to share an experience yeah, sure, that prompted sure. me to join the Brand Malaysia. Yeah, that was, there was before I joined the organization. Hmm. Yeah. So for 10 years, I was working as a manager in the a, in a Sarawak Forestry Corporation in Sarawak. One of my main roles was to address conflicts in forest management, particularly among the Penang community. For the whole of the 10 years, I could not find a solution that could be acceptable by the community, the government, and the logging companies. Oh, dear. Yes, it was difficult. Okay. In, in 2010, uh, WM Malaysia invited my organization to field test a high conservation value toolkit in Sarawak. 
The toolkit was then accepted, uh, was then accepted in principle by all forestry agencies in Malaysia, but it must be field tested before rolling out for adoption in Peninsular Malaysia, Sabah, and Sarawak. Now, I was a, the team leader that field tested the toolkit with a group of Penang communities. Okay. Based on the specific questions raised in the toolkit, I was able to ask the community to define and describe things of importance to them. Right. And what's important was the findings were accepted by the Forestry Authority and the logging, uh, and the logging company. My aha moment was when everybody, including the Penan, accepted the findings of the High Conservation Value Assessment. And this paved way for all the three parties to enter into collaboration to adopt the process to initiate the implementation of sustainable forest management. So, so with this experience, right, um, you know, I felt that look, working with the ref is, is a great moment. And when they invited me to join, I you know, gladly accepted that invitation. <laughs> so this was, uh, so what year was that exactly, Henry? Yeah, this was 2010. 2010, uh, and, okay. I joined, and I joined the ref in 20, 2012. You know, just, just to conclude, right, uh, you know, perhaps this is, to, to most of us, right, this is no big deal, yeah? Mm. Uh, what's the big deal of finding solutions, you know, with the community? Yeah, but for us, yeah, Searching for the holy grail for permanent acceptance of sustainable forest management, it was really a moment of celebration that eventually, you know, motivated that eventually motivated me to join the Rev Malaysia. And there you've been for the last ten years. It's your tenth anniversary there as well. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations on that as well. And I guess, you know, when you look forward, um, and I mean, okay, 10 years now, of course, we always ask you, you know, what's your next five to 10 year plan? When you look forward, what do you think are the big challenges that you want to address? Yeah, on 10th of January this year, uh, 2022, our Prime Minister announced a pledge to increase our peninsula Malaysia forest cover from mm-hmm. 43% to 50% by the year 2040. Now, this is a big challenge, yeah, because this this is 7% and represents an absolute number of 900,000 hectares of additional land area to be gazetted as forest reserves. Mm-hmm. Now, figuring where these 900,000 hectares of not yet gazetted forest is a big challenge. And even more, an even bigger challenge is the likelihood that we don't even have such a forested area in Peninsular Malaysia. Yeah. So, this would then mean identifying existing oil palm and rubber plantations that may require restoration into forests. Now, Juliet, who would, in the right frame of mind, agree to give up their palm oil area to be restored as forests, right? Yep. So this is a big challenge, yeah? So therefore, our big challenge then is to formulate a pragmatic framework where the landowners will find it economically viable to convert their plantations into forests. To date, no such framework exists. But I'm confident the net zero pathway that I mentioned above provides the answer. The answer is to develop the formula and the policy framework where a limited span of farmland restored into forests would generate more economic returns as compared to keeping them under either palm oil or rubber plantation. Okay, so it's it's a matter of finding a win-win solution for everybody pretty much, right? Yes, uh, it's also important for the for the policy framework where uh, we we actually price carbon and therefore mm-hmm. we the carbon emission. Yeah, yeah, putting a price on ecosystem services and things like that as well, right? Really critical as well because that's not been done for a long time. Exactly. 
Okay. All right. So that's that's something that, that you are looking forward to. I mean, does this job ever get easier, Henry? I mean, it's, it's you know, like I mentioned earlier, it's just like seems like an uphill task all the time. I mean, what gives you hope, you know, uh, in doing all of this? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. You know, most of our work, right, pertains to problem solving. And initially, it's, it's difficult. In, in all cases, you know, when you embark on a new uh, area, it's always difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we in the Royal Malaysia, we are, we are privileged to be guided by a step-by-step strategic process in which we start by determining what is important, what is our core area. So in this case, what is important for conservation in a given geography. Mm-hmm. So let's say in Sabah, we define things of importance such as orangutan, elephants and forests as our conservation targets. We then okay. identify things that threaten those targets. The usual threats are deforestation and conversion of forests into other land uses, as well as logging that degrades the forest. We examine the drivers that cause these threats. Using the approach of cause and effect relationship, we then further examine the factors that constitute these drivers. So next, once we have understood, tested and validated the factors that make the drivers, we design our strategies that lead towards removing the threats. Finally, for each strategy, we determine all the steps required to reach our final destination of removing the threats. After that, now this is just the planning. Yeah? After that is the implementation of the action plans. Again, there are steps and processes before we actually embark on the implementation. We must have the resources, both human and financial, to ensure that our work progresses smoothly. Thereafter, we monitor project implementation by checking on the achievement of milestones. When we run into problems, we undertake additive management to remove the roadblocks and, if necessary, chart a new direction towards removing the threats. Now, for that reason, our government and corporate sectors look at the river Malaysia towards problem solving on issues confronting them. Now, a key reason is our ability to mobilize key actors to come together to agree on common problems that afflict all of us and to then adopt strategies that result in the common good and the common goods that are beneficial to all of them. So over time, you let our jobs get easier. Now, however, we do not stop at that. We constantly scan the horizon to gain an overview of the big picture. So as I mentioned earlier, in our recently completed 2021 to 2030 strategy, we see Malaysia as a whole and its position in the world in reversing natural loss and attaining sustainability by 2030. Okay, I mean that's really promising to hear. You know, uh, you know that there's such a there's a very like uh, comprehensive plan there, and you know you know what needs to be done to make sure everything gets done. I mean, it's one thing to have plans, right? The implementation and the monitoring; those are really really important uh, components of it as well. So it, it's really good to hear that. I'm speaking today to Dr. Henry Chan. He's the conservation director at WWF Malaysia. It's WWF Malaysia's 50th anniversary. They turned 50 in January, so we're just uh, helping to celebrate along with them. We'll have more. After this very quick break, you're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. 
Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I am Julia Jacobs. On the line with me today, Dr. Henry Chan, Conservation Director at WWF Malaysia. WWF Malaysia turned 50 in January, so we're celebrating along with them, uh, looking back at some of the achievements, also looking forward to how we can address those uh, never-ending challenges. Um, so yeah, I guess, Henry, what are some of the current projects WWF Malaysia are working on, uh, especially it being your 50th anniversary? Maybe do you have a 10-year plan? Anything you'd like to share? Yes, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we have the 10-year plan. The 10-year plan is our 2021 to 2030 strategy. Mm-hmm. And this document serves as our North Star, as our guideline for conservation work. The document clearly delineates the course of action that we intend to take for the next 10 years. We have set 10 goals that define natural laws and a sustainable Malaysia. These 10 goals cover legislation, sustainable management of and restoration of forests, sustainable management of coastal seas, not just on the land, but also seas as well, fish and the turtle habitat, sustained population of priority wildlife species, pathway to net zero emissions that I mentioned earlier, the eradication of plastic leakage into nature, sustainable infrastructure because roads were cut into forests, and sustainably align financial instruments for policymakers and the regulators. Now, all of these tangos, they, they, they seem mouthful, they actually benefit Malaysians from all walks of life. Now, critical to our 10-year strategy is a collaborative relationship with government entities, the private sector, civil society, and local communities to ensure smooth execution of the strategy and attainment of our common goals. Now, let me share with your listeners one of the projects that will benefit Malaysia as a whole. The project involves addressing issues faced by the palm oil industry, a major sector that creates millions of jobs, bringing hundreds of thousands out of poverty, and forms a major revenue earner to the country. The problem with palm oil plantations is its association with forest loss, forest fire, and loss of nature. In Europe, it's a huge campaign now demanding that there's no palm oil in any of the products going to Europe. Why is this? Because the loss of nature is in turn associated with climate change and global warming because our forest is our green lung that absorbs emission of greenhouse gases. So we address these issues of the palm oil by introducing the living landscape approach, the living landscape approach, which is underpinned by the three pillars of protect, produce and restore. Under the, under the protect pillar, we protect large expenses of forests and wildlife species found within it. So that addresses the issue of deforestation and loss of wildlife habitat. Under the produce pillar, we encourage plantation companies to adopt best management practices in compliance with certification. This brings up good behavior among plantation managers by incorporating wildlife conservation into their plantations. Now, once the plantation and managers and owners understand the natural needs for wildlife, they will come to see that their plantations are actually a problem to wildlife conservation, which have divided and caused the fragmentation to forests. So once they understand that, they will themselves offer solutions to the problems, such as setting land aside to establish wildlife corridors to reconnect the fragmented forests. One example is Sabah Southwoods in Sabah, setting aside 1,000 hectares of tighted land as wildlife corridors to reconnect the Olu Kolumpang forest reserves 
to the central forest in Sabah. Now this then sets the foundation for the third pillar of restore, leading to the restoration of deforested and degraded landscape. Now several multinational corporations such as HSBC Bank, Unilever, Proto and Gamble, the German companies of Ivone uh, and Biastor saw this as a solution to the issues confronting the palm oil industry, and they are now our partners to our living landscape approach. So what is crucial about the living landscape approach is that it is made possible because of good government policies. This relates to the 50% of our land mass as forest cover and 20% to be protected areas, as well as capping of 20% of Malaysia's land mass to be under palm oil plantations. And what is equally important is a commitment for all palm oil produced in Malaysia to be 100% certified. This is a crucial policy of Malaysia. So these land use policies, good corporate behavior, and the principles of the living landscape approach set the foundation for reversing the loss of nature and a sustainable Malaysia by 2030. Okay, that sounds like a really robust plan. And, you know, it's really good to hear that, you know, you've got the corporations on board as well and that um, there is some sort of light at the end of this tunnel, isn't it? There's some sort of pathway to follow, actually. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, also, uh, in the upcoming the Convention for Biodiversity in Kuomintang, China, hmm. uh, most of these players in the landscape will be invited uh, to make presentations in, you know, in that global event. Okay, so yeah, that's coming up uh, a later part of this year, right? So that should be yeah, definitely something that we also uh, keep an eye on. I guess I mean, we're just running out of time, Henry. I guess you know, if if um if you had a wish list, you know, that you'd like to to share with me, uh, what would that what would be on that wish list? Yeah, my wish for the coming years yeah, is to build a climate change program that effectively elevates Malaysia. Malaysia is a country that contributes to both combating the climate crisis and biodiversity loss. This is through the net zero pathway in which all greenhouse gases emitted into the atmosphere in Malaysia are absorbed by our healthy forests. The, net, the goal is net zero, effectively making Malaysia as a country that does not contribute at all to global warming. The other goal is that half of Malaysia as a healthy forest has turned into an effective natural habitat for our thriving wildlife. Is this wishful thinking? The answer is no. <laughs> Glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Um, first of all, our Prime Minister last September has announced the commitment to phase out coal from our energy generation. Mm-hmm. This commitment is critical because energy generation constitutes 50% of our greenhouse gas emissions. The other sector are transportation, constituting 25% of the emissions. And we also have good news. Protonas and Malaysia Airlines have pledged towards low-carbon uh, transportation. And if they do indeed decarbonize and phase out fossil fuel, we will be on the right track towards net zero. These leave the last 25% of emissions to be reduced from industrial processes, waste, which produce methane, agriculture, and conversion of forests into various land users. And if we can maintain a large proportion of our existing forest cover, at 54% in throughout Malaysia and undertake forest restoration of more than 1 million hectare of regretted forests, our Malaysian forests will become a global green lung to absorb all the remaining greenhouse gases emitted in our country. Now, this idea is not plucked out from the sky. Last year, the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, has collaborated with us to undertake a comprehensive study 
towards net zero emissions by, Mal- by 2050 in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Our report launched in Glasgow last year contains all the key numbers and the 10 priorities needed to transition Malaysia into a net zero pathway. Important stakeholders such as the CEO Action Network comprising progressive CEOs in Malaysia has invited to partner with them towards net zero. The government led by the Ministry of Environment and Water has also laid the roadmap towards net zero as early as 2050. But the journey towards net zero is not an easy one. It requires the whole of Malaysia to attain that goal. And this involves you and I and all your listeners, Juliet. The first start is to yeah, first start to your listeners is to download our net zero report from our WWF website and see what you can do to secure our future from the devastating effects of climate change. Okay. All right. So we've got that call to action there. Um, yeah, but any, any last message you'd like to leave to listeners? Maybe how they can uh, get involved with WWF's work, you know, uh, what sort of support that you guys need? Anything at all? Yes, thank you, Juliet, for offering me one last message. Yes, so my final message is that we are at the front line. But the real conservation heroes are people from all walks of life. And Juliet, they are your listeners. So to you outside there listening to us, get informed, get involved, get connected. Your voice matters. Give a thumbs up to our social media statement. Give your comments to our letters to the editors and keep the conservation going. Use your social media to raise matters of concern for the environment. Forward video clips and give your comments to build a public momentum so that government and corporate leaders and corporate leaders listen to your views. Lastly, we need a whole national approach. So join our so join our movement. Sign up as supporters to our WF website uh, on FB, Instagram, and our community platforms. Thank you, Juliet, for giving us so much time to send our message to your listeners. Hey, the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much, Henry, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Dr. Henry Chan, Conservation Director of WWF Malaysia. Uh, it is WWF Malaysia's 50th anniversary this year. So we're looking back at some of the achievements and also, you know, as, as Henry mentioned, you know, the long way forward and all the things that are in place that needs to be done. But I think the bottom line is, as Henry said, it's an all of society approach. We all need to get involved. So if you'd like to find out how you can help, uh, as Henry said, just head to www.org.my follow them on social media, support their work or, um, yeah, and just find out ways that you can be part of the solution rather than the problem, isn't it? Um, and if you miss any part of today's interview, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my earth or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.